the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, blank expressions turn out to be actual skips in the universe, which has now been proven to be a sleeveless vinyl LP from the flea market at the end of time. Mass markets of construction and insurrection plus. We continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we talk again with Larry Correa about House of Assassins this time, his sequel to The Son of the Black Sword. Larry talks about the world, the magic, the plot, and the characters of this great high fantasy entry in an excellent series. That's House of Assassins coming up. This is part two and the conclusion of our two-part interview. And we continue with more Korea as we serialize the first book in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior series, Larry Korea's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Mass markets, mass markets, let down your fine hair. Or words and pages, rather. And, and we will climb up to that tower and rescue you from the evil fairy godmother of illiteracy. That makes no sense. Anyway, there are new Bane mass markets in February. These include Witchy Winter by DJ Butler. Sarah Calhoun has paid a hard price for her entry onto the stage of the Empire's politics, but she has survived. Now to win the Serpent Throne, she'll have to defeat seven other candidates, win over the kingdom's regent, and learn the will of a hidden goddess, all while mastering her people's inscrutable ways and watching her own back. Also at Booksellers in February is Bringers of Hell by Travis S. Taylor. Despite unprecedented victories on the part of humanity, the war with the alien Chiata Horde drags on. Meanwhile, Alexander Moore's daughter, Deanna Moore, now known by the callsign Phoenix, wages a personal war on the alien menace. And last but not least, out now is Sins of Her Father by Mike Coopery. An exiled leader must return to his homeworld to stave off disaster, but getting there is easier said than done. Enter privateer Captain Catherine Blackwood and the crew of the Starship Andromeda. Sins of Her Father by Mike Coopery. Bringers of Hell by Travis S. Taylor and Witchy Winter by D.J. Butler. Two science fiction novels and a great historical fantasy are now available at booksellers everywhere. This is part two of a two-part interview with Larry Correa talking about House of Assassins. Part one is available on last week's podcast. I want to welcome Larry Correa back to the podcast. Hey, Larry. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Larry Correa is, hey, this is uh, the new bio that we worked out. <laughs> Larry Correa is an avid gun user and advocate and shot on a competitive level for many years. Before becoming a full-time writer, he was a military contract accountant and a small business accountant and manager. He is the creator of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times best-selling Monster Hunter series with first entry Monster Hunter International. 
as well as urban fantasy hardboiled adventure saga, The Grimnor Chronicles. That one, the first entry on that, if you want to start reading it, is hard magic. And epic fantasy series, the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. These are the Bane series he's got, plus um, uh, we got the Dead Six series you wrote with Mike Coopery as well. And the first entry in the, the saga of the Forgotten Warrior was Son of the Black Sword. Larry lives in Utah with his wife and family, and now out at booksellers everywhere, and uh, about to uh, be graced with a Larry Korea tour, is House of Assassins, which is book two in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. That's the sequel to Son of the Black Sword. Gush plays stupid, he's actually one of the smartest characters in the book, but he plays dumb. Because, you know, he's lower he's lower cast. Even amongst his cast, amongst the workies, he's actually a very important, very rich guy. Um, but amongst, you know, when he's dealing with warriors and uh, first cast people, they just think he's crap. And so he plays it up. He's just like, I'm just a big, stupid, funny guy, you know. But he's actually, actually a pretty brilliant criminal. <laughs> so, no, it, it, yeah, it's... There's a wonderful bit where you uh, where he actually gets Ashok to come look for him when he's been uh, detained, which is we won't give it away, of course, but it's uh, it's it's worth reading the book just for that letter. <laughs> it's hilarious. Oh, that that because Gutch, anytime Gutch deals with like like higher caste people, he always uh, puts on that affectation of oh, I am but your humble humble you know foolish servant who got in trouble and. Oh, please, glorious master, could you come and aid your humble moronic servant to, you know, do no fault of his own. <laughs> and there's so much that is written between the lines there, if you know how to read it, you know, that, that Ashok is able to. So. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that part was great. Because well, what happens in the second book is they're trying to track down the House of Assassins, who are illegal wizards. Uh, and the way magic works in this world is actually in, in contained in physical items that uh, are all registered with the government. And so there's a huge trade in illegal magic smuggling. And so Gooch is, or Gooch, <laughs> Gutch, I'm sorry, his, the guy I based him on is is actually, his name is Gooch. His real, his real last name is Gooch. That's where Gutch comes from, just so you know. <laughs> He's based <laughs> on a real dude. Um, but Gutch tracks them down. Um, because he kind of follows them through their suppliers. And so part of this is they go into this big city in the east, this big industrial city, uh, and he's trying to track down the illegal magic trade. The thing is, Gutch hasn't been there for about four years, because remember, he spent the last year in prison. Uh, so when he gets there, the, the people that are his friends are out of business or dead, and somebody who really, really, really hates him is now in charge of the city, is in charge of the criminals in the city, which they find out uh, rather dramatically. <laughs> <laughs> when they go in there yeah, and start yeah. asking around. Uh, yeah, it's a great, great sequence. So, you know, big fat so guy trying, trying to escape over a fence. <laughs> yeah. There's that city. There's a lot of really cool fighting that goes on in, uh, what is it, near Amforn, the, the city. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, near That's where Ashok uh, uh, fights three protectors. Oh, yeah, Oh yeah, that sequence was great. Oh my gosh, yeah. I uh, I am not a sword fighter. I am not a sword. I'm a gun expert. That's where my where I started writing action scenes. It was gun stuff. I know my gun stuff. In this series, I have to. Uh, I write the scenes. I try to make them as good as I can, and then I take them to various experts on sword stuff, 
and, uh, you know, martial arts and have them go through to make sure that I actually don't screw this stuff up. And that scene there, I had, uh, you know, two sword fights and then a pole arm fight. So I had to, I had to get some help on that. Um, yeah. So in fact, Whit Williams has a, uh, uh, an article up on the band webpage right now, swords of lock. Uh, cause Whit was one of my guys that I used to, um, to, to make sure I get all this stuff, um, uh, realistic and, and, and good. So, you know, I do my homework, but <laughs> there's only so much you can do. Yeah, but well, they're 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 great. That I think that that fight with the three uh, protectors is my favorite, like just pure action sequence. So it it reminded me of you know like a Hong Kong action movie the way you you wrote it. Oh yeah, that was I I, I had fun with that one. That was that was a pretty cool scene. Yeah. So um, tell tell us a little bit more about the House of Assassins. Um. And this guy who is the the leader, whose name is uh, Jack Sasso, where is it? Uh... Sikasso. Yeah, that guy. (laughs) Well, okay, so we meet them in the first book, and what it is is the Grand Inquisitor is using this group of illegal wizards uh, to do basically nefarious deeds for him on the down low. And they're a very, very interesting group, and we get to learn where they come from and what their history is uh, in the second book. And so what it is is there, there's this area uh, on the map that's just kind of like this big wilderness area, and people don't really go there. It's, it's all coastline it's by the ocean, and then inland is all very, very marshy and swampy, which leads to a lot of demons being deep inland. So this is an area that people just avoid. And um, But what it turns out is there was actually a long time ago a city there uh, that even after the, the fall... Uh, that people still remain there because it was such a great and beautiful city, and there was actually a great house there. Um, but then at one point, they got into illegal magic. They went, uh, they went against the law. They got too big for their bridges. And so the government destroyed them. The law, the law crushed them and just made it, made it so they almost never existed, and then pretty much erased them from history, uh, you know, just you know, so that it, they wouldn't inspire any other houses to delve into this kind of illegal magic. Um, so what happens is the House of Assassins are the are the leftovers of that, and they are a very, very malicious group that does extremely evil things, and they get paid in magic. Um, and so basically they're just kind of hoarding their powers, they're consolidating, they're getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So they've kind of become this, like, really dark shadow organization scattered around the continent, up to no good. They commit assassinations. Um, they're very wealthy, very connected, um, and so and I don't want to give too much away from the book, but we we go into you know who these guys really are and what their philosophy is, and Castera is their prisoner, but they're also trying to unlock her power. They're trying to figure out where her magic comes from because there's only two known sources of magic uh, in this universe: uh, demons and black steel, which is you know, the things like the ancestor blades, and then demons, obviously, the creatures from the ocean. So all magic comes from those two sources. Whatever it is that's speaking through Thera as the voice of the gods is something different. So for them, they're trying to figure out how she kicks, and they're trying to unlock her power. And Sakasa is the leader of the House of Assassins, and he is a dangerous, dangerous man. He's extremely driven, he's extremely intelligent, and he's a very, very powerful wizard. And so, uh, Sakaso, so Thera has become Sakaso's like pet project. 
Now, if you remember at the end of Son of the Black Sword, he, he fought Ashok and lost, and lost badly and got very, very injured. I don't give too much away. Um, so as when we meet him in this, not only is he still evil and nefarious, he's also desperate because he lost Ashok. He's he badly hurt. He's seen as weak in a group of people that are all – this is a house of professional killers. And so, you know, they don't, they don't have democratic elections to decide who's the leader. It's basically whoever, whoever can kill the leader and be, you know, still beneficial for the majority of the house is going to is going to take over. And so Sakaso is kind of desperate to unlock Sarah's magic because he needs to like consolidate his power before he gets replaced or assassinated. Um, so they're just a shift, shifty bunch. <laughs> yeah. So how does this? Um they're always using demon bones and demon pieces. Um, and, and you, it seems like that, although you don't actually just sit down and diagram, it seems like you've, you've got a theory of how all this, uh, how the magic works that like you need a demon I thing. Do, yeah. Right. Well, okay. So the two sources of the two sources of magic, like I said, one is the black steel, which it came from the gods, you know, a long time ago. And it's super powerful and super potent. However, it's limited. What there is, there is. I mean, every now and then they find some more of it, but for the most part, what's out there is out there, and when it's used up, it's gone. Um, so it's super valuable, but irreplaceable. And then there's the replaceable source of magic is demons. So whenever you kill a demon, or whenever you find a dead demon, like washed up on shore, that is super valuable, because every part of that demon is filled with magic. So demon hide, demon bone, demon blood, this is all super valuable, and, uh, and so anytime a demon is found, the law claims it. And it's supposed to go to the, you know, the, the, the law is supposed to control who has it. This is under the control of the Inquisition. But what happens is that um, uh, there's a huge black market in demon bits. And that's what most wizards use. And that's where the house of, that's how you pay the house of assassins. Um, now, yeah, I have actually gone into a great detail in my notes as far as how the magic system actually works. Because I, I kind of like to do hard magic systems. I like to do kind of like a scientific magic system. So there's a reason all this stuff works the way it does. Um, however, for the people in this book, I'm, you know, I'll never get too much into that. Um, it'll be more like, because to them, this is just magic. It just is what it is. Just like the gods. It is what it is in the history. You know, it, it's all going to be through their perception. But I have had a couple astute readers uh, email me, and they're like, hey, I think it's this, this, and this, and I think this is what really happened historically. And yes. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I'm never going to come out and say yeah. that, because these people, this is just their myth and their magic and their, and their, and their world. Um, but I had actually uh, Jim Butcher. Uh, Jim Butcher, when he read the first one, he sent me an email. And it was actually the most detailed email that anybody had sent me as far as their guesses where magic comes from. And Jim was spot on, 100% accurate with how everything worked. And I was like, "Damn, dude, that's why." See, that's why he's a pro. <laughs> <laughs> he that's sussed why it he out. Did yeah. His job. <laughs> yeah, this man is well, like a building. He saw what I was doing. It's a lot of fun for. I mean, those that might like, uh, you know, to try to solve a mystery. You you give enough clues that you can you can start to piece it together. Um, so uh, just by how things work. Well, one thing I'm having fun with is because these people are basically, uh, what we're seeing is, we're, I mean, obviously the third book is called Destroyer of Worlds. So we're basically seeing the, the fall of an old system and the rise of a new. 
Um, I describe Ashok as kind of a cross between George Washington and the Punisher, right? Because, um, you know, he's kind of the father of a, of a new new country here. But um, part of what I'm doing is, uh, like, all the events, the big, the big events that these people go through are the things that later on are going to wind up, like, the, the legends of these people and, like, the myths of these people. Because part of this, like, Sarah, Sarah is... She, she doesn't want to be a prophet, but she is. And so as they're going, they're kind of like making up the doctrine of their religion as they go. Um, and a lot of it's really half-assed. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the idea is, and you're going to look at this, and this is, what, you know, this is what's actually happening, but like, you know, hundreds of years later, these are going to be the events that people have legends about. These are going to be the, the, the tales and the symbols. Um, oh, like, like I, I can't give too much away, but, like, um, one of the things that happens in House of Assassins involves a meat hook. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, later on, we're going to see the meat hook is actually going to be, it's going to be a symbol um, uh, for these people. It's going to be, it's going to be, some, it's going to be something, it's a, the hook is going to be something symbolic for them. You know, something highly symbolic, uh, because the, the stories will grow. Definitely the uh, it's the the dying god myth that breaks it. That the uh, what's that guy that's uh, Kara right? He, he Keta. He as much as admits he's just like you know it's like I'm just coming out with shit. You know, at one point he gets drunk and, and like, the keeper of names. Yeah, and he's actually a super important character in the series too because he's kind of the um, he's kind of the chronicler, right? So he's kind of the guy that's putting these stories together. He's kind of he's the one that's like telling the tales. So what it is is he's he was castless. He was one of the lowest. He was one of the lowest low non people um, who kind of got roped into this and became the keeper of names. So he's the guy that keeps the genealogy of the the the, the people who descended from this ancient hero. And so he's also kind of like the first member of, of the of the new clergy, if you will. He's basically a priest. Um, for a religion that doesn't officially exist, and no one really understands what their doctrine is. So, Kenneth kind of just kind of makes it up as he goes. And so he's got all these old stories, and he tells these stories. And then, like, events happen, and he's the guy that takes them and spins them, and be like, oh, this is a symbol of such and such. Or, like, this is what the gods really meant. And at one point, there's a beautiful scene with him and Ashok, and um, they've been under a lot of stress and uh, for a while, and they've actually you know, had a little break, and Akeda gets super drunk, <laughs> and he's just confiding in Ashok, all his doubts and fears, and the fact that he doesn't know what he's doing, and, 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 and like, so thousands of people are looking to him for, like, leadership and spiritual guidance, and he's like, I don't know, I'm just making this stuff up. <laughs> yeah, he's always hated religious fanatics, I mean, his job has been to kill religious fanatics, and then he meet, he's got this one religious fanatic, and he actually feels really bad because Ked is actually he's trying so hard to do the right thing. Uh, it's it's he's a great character. Um, yeah, actually, the very first thing I wrote in this universe was a short story called Keeper of Names. Um, it was kind of about it's kind of like the lay of the groundwork, uh, and, it, and it appeared in. Um, uh, Bayon Anthology, like a long time ago, it's called Shattered Shields. And uh, so actually the very first character I wrote about in this setting was, was Keta. 
uh, and it was just about about, about the, um, the the castless uprising of his house and where he became keeper of names. So yeah, but I've got a ton of really fun stuff planned for him too. And this poor guy, he's trying. <laughs> well, somebody's got it, and he, he's so hopeful under such trying circumstances. So he's... yeah, that's the thing. He really is. He really is a true believer, and he really is trying to like. He really does believe that the gods are going to free his people, and that the gods are going to make the castless. He, the gods are going to improve the lives of the uh, lives of the castless, and um, you know, so he starts out kind of as a firebrand, and uh, you know, he as, as a rabble rouser and a rebel. But but as it goes on, he he also has to. It's funny too because he'll he'll like he'll like lecture people about how castes don't matter, and you know, we're all free men, you know. But then, like the second there's like some conflict, he he will immediately fall back into his old ways of being you know hating. <laughs> Everybody who is not like him. There's actually some great bits between him and Gutch, because Gutch is just you know a worker and a criminal, <laughs> and and Ted is this true believing fanatic. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I, I got a lot of really cool people that I, I've kind of dragged together for this. Yeah. One other subplot we maybe should mention and, and talk about a little bit is the uh, is Devadas and Rada, uh, which is a love story you've got going on. Um, it's a very odd sort of love. It is an odd love story. So, so Rada is uh, another member of the first cast. Uh, she's in the capital. She's a librarian. So she she's an archivist at the Great Central Library, which is where they catalog all the law and also you know every book. Because remember, the government approves every book. Um, and so she she is she's actually extremely antisocial. She doesn't like people. She doesn't like talking to people. She doesn't like associating with other human beings. She is perfectly happy to sit in the library the rest of her life, right? But she gets dragged into this big convoluted plot uh, involving, like, you know, murder and genocide and overthrowing the government uh, just basically because she's too ambitious for her own good and and decides to do extra paperwork. (laughs) And so... um, you know, she gets dragged into this, and what happens is she she tries to do the right thing. You know, she she um, she's a, she's basically a good person, um, but what happens is she seeks out Devados, who's the, the head of the Protect Order now, who's like Ashok's former brother. Um, and it is actually an unlikely love story, um, and Devados is a super ambitious man, and he's a hard dude. He is he's a very dangerous, dangerous man, but he's not a bad man. Um, he does a lot of bad things, but he's really not. He he ultimately wants to do a, the good thing. Only he sees he sees the flaws in the law, and he sees an opportunity to set things right by putting himself in charge. Is what it is. But he actually does fall for Retta, and there's this love story between the two that's actually <laughs> I think it's kind of sweet because Rat is so clueless, and Devados is kind of an asshole. Uh, <laughs> But to Rada, he's a real catch. <laughs> and so, uh, but as it goes on, Rada, Rada actually has some really important things to do. Um, and she gets separated from Devados in the second one because he has to basically hide her uh, to protect her. Because uh, other political forces like the Grand Inquisitor would actually love to have her uh, in their clutches just so they could use her as a bargaining chip to keep Devados in line. Because he's, you know, politically super important. Um, and so she winds up. This poor librarian who never, who's read about adventure, never wanted to do it, um, winds up going basically on the run 
from the law. Uh, and she's completely clueless. And, you know, having the dodge bounty hunters <laughs> uh, winds up getting involved in some, in some very interesting things. So I don't want to give too much away. Yeah. I just wrote a great scene with her. I just wrote a great scene with her for Destroyer of Worlds um, where, where she's fleeing from some Inquisitors um, through a city during uh, the New Year. So, they're, you know, everybody's, like, throwing brightly colored dust and pigments and colored water on each other, and she's trying to escape through the crowds during all that. Awesome scene. But, uh Well, she knows she's real smart, and she's a great researcher. That's her, her big strength. She's of the historian class, right? Yeah, yeah. So she is, she is privy to more knowledge than the average person, but even amongst the librarians, um, the old historical stuff is kept under lock and key. Uh, and so she gets into that as part of her assignment she takes on that she's not supposed to have. Um, and basically what it is, is the Grand Inquisitor has this plot to to uh, order the execution, the genocide of all the castles. And, you know, this is just business for these people, because the first cast is so insulated from the poor. But she winds up doing the research on this, and she discovers the truth of who the castles really are, how they descended from this ancient hero. And um, But she's intimidated by the House of Assassins, because they're working for the the Grand Inquisitor, into keeping her mouth shut. And so she presents a bad report to the judges, which to a librarian is like the ultimate shame, right? And so that's how she winds up seeking out Devados afterwards to try to set things right. Um, that's actually fun. I think, she, I think she's Tony Weisskopf's favorite character. <laughs> like, yeah, Tony's like, oh, you know, the nepish librarian girl who's in over her head and hates everyone. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, the characters of this world are, are have a lot of shame and honor issues. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the whole society is very styrated and it's very, very organized. One of the things I bring up a lot in there is because there's a really common saying in the culture is that every man has a place. And what it is is you've got a society where literally everybody has their assignment. And I mean, your your marriages are arranged. Your career is arranged, your, your duties are arranged, and there's all this pressure to conform, and there's all this pressure to, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of collectivist stuff where these people are expected to do this. And so I'm writing about kind of the people that are like the outliers and the people that are kind of breaking the mold and causing all this trouble because they don't, they don't have a place. They don't fit. So they're making their own place, and that's just bad. And uh, it's kind of a beautiful thing. I... I uh, I'm primarily an action guy, but I can be I can be nuanced when I need to. <laughs> <laughs> you're always doing that. That's, you're like you're like uh, uh, what's his name with your uh, with I'm a action guy, but I can write. Uh, you're like Gutch, <laughs> you know. It's like yeah, you can write a little bit. All right. So what uh, what are you what are you working on? What do you put? What are you writing in? Uh, a couple things simultaneously. So I, I'm about forty. 45 or 50,000 words in, this, in the Destroyer of Worlds, uh, which is book three. And it's coming along great. Very happy with that. And I'm also working on uh, a Tom Stranger, uh, another Tom Stranger uh, comedy, another Tom, uh, novella, because those are just, those are fun and short, and I, I have a lot, of, a lot of fun with those. Um, those are in print now in the target-rich environment with Bayon, but also they originally existed as uh, audiobooks for Audible. Um, and they're just my goofy science fiction comedy series. Um, think of think of like American Doctor Who, super violent, 
crazy action-packed American version. Uh, you know, so it's, uh, it's it's about interdimensional insurance agents. Okay, so that's what I'm working on right now. And then I've got two collaborations that are currently in the works. One's a science fiction collaboration with John D. Brown. Uh, it's about it's about uh, it's basically space pirates that specialize in stealing giant fighting robots. And then I've got another series with Steve Diamond that uh, we're working on. It's a think of like a World War One Eastern Front trench fantasy. So it's a world with really dark fairy tale magic, basically from the perspective of like the the, the grunts. Um, uh, in the trenches. So and it is very cool. And so I've got those two collaborations. So, so basically I've got four things going on at once right now is, is what I'm doing. So, And the sequel to... Uh, you're actively working on the sequel uh, to House of Assassins as well, you were you were mentioning, right? Yep, that's the one. I'm about, like I said, about 45 doing that right now. Yeah, so that's I got to... Cool. Uh, yeah, that, that's book three of the of this series. It's it's really it's pretty badass. Um, what's coming up? Uh, what's coming out this uh, this year? Oh gosh. Okay, so Monster Hunter Guardian. Uh, well, so House of Assassins is coming out now, um, and then Monster Hunter Guardian uh, is I want to say August, and that's a Monster Hunter novel. It's the the sixth novel in the regular Monster Hunter series. But it's a collaboration with me and Sarah Hoyt. It's about uh, Julie Shackelford. So it's a Julie Shackelford novel. It is really cool. It's really, really awesome. I'm really excited about that. Um, and then I also have an anthology uh, that's coming out uh, that I edited with uh, Casey Ezel. It's called Noir Fatale. And it's a collection of uh, science fiction and fantasy noir stories. So, you know, like... Uh, Dark and Stormy Night, Hard Boiled Detective, Femme Fatales, uh, Murder Mysteries, that kind of thing. And uh, but all science fiction and fantasy. Got some great authors in that one. We got David Weber did a story in the Honor Harrington universe for us in there. Laurel K. Hamilton did an Anita Blake story for us in there. It's it's a really good anthology. And then I have one other release this year, and it's Target Rich Environment Two, which is the second part of my short story collection. Uh, it's just a bunch of Larry Korea short stories, and um, I, I don't remember what the date is, but so that's the three releases I have, or four releases I have this year. I guess actually Bayon has a Larry Korea release every quarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. Well, uh, we'll have, uh, the first one will be Noir Fatale, and then uh, Mastoner Guardian, and then uh, Target Rich Environment 2, which I think is September uh, book or October. So it's, yeah, so it's May for Noir Fatale. August for um, Monster Hunter Guardian, and then September for Target Rich Environment 2. Yeah, I think that's the way it goes. It might be October. I better check. But, um, uh, yeah, well, we we like them <laughs> to come uh, regularly and bang, bang in, in, in the quarters like that. That's an excellent uh, way to bring them out. So uh, what, what's, what's up with Monster Hunter? People will want to know. Uh, Oh, uh, the Monster Hunter yeah, International yeah, series, series. Uh, still ongoing. Like I said, Guardians, the next one. Uh, then after that, uh, the next planned one in the series, which I have not started yet, uh, will be another um, Owen book. So it'll be another solo book. Um, and so the Monster Hunter series right now, so I'm going to six regular books, three Ringo spinoffs, and a short story collection. So uh, yeah, that, the Monster Hunter series is still going strong. 
I've still got a lot more planned for that. Um, I don't. The end is not in sight because I keep opening it up uh, and doing more stuff with with other characters and other people. Um, no, so Monster Hunter, yeah, it's still it's still going strong, and uh, there there are many more plans for that. That's cool. So uh, give us a, as much as you can about Destroyer of Worlds just to sort of end up with, with, a, with a final reference to this uh, great series, the Saga of the Forgotten Warrior. Yeah, it picks up right after House of Assassins, like immediately, like, like it picks up spring, right after the winter of House of Assassins. Um, and what happens is there's a uh, brewing rebellion. Um, the Grand Inquisitor is able to put his plans more into uh, effect to overthrow the government and also to genocide all the castless, to, to kill the castless. So they start an experiment in the south in this one particular province. They decide they're going to genocide all the castless there as an experiment to see how it goes everywhere else. Uh, and that's how the book opens, except, you know, the Grand Inquisitor knows that's going to spiral out of control and set the whole country on fire. And the province they pick is specifically because it is very near to where the House of Assassins is and where Ashok was last seen. So they're very specifically drawing Ashok into open rebellion against the law. Uh, and so what happens in Destroyer's world is Locke plunges into civil war. Um, house wars break out between a couple of the great houses, and the South is plunged into a full-fledged castless rebellion. And, um, yeah, it's... it's so it's basically book three is uh, the law descends into chaos is what happens. It's it's pretty awesome. That's and cool. There are more there are more planned after that because I recently I I pitched this to Tony Weisskopf as a three book series and I outlined Tony it's like this is the, this is what I expect to happen in those three books and she looked at my outline and she goes you know there's no way in the world you're going to fit that in the three books. <laughs> But you know, it's better to, it's better to be ambitious and shoot for the stars. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what we call a, a Bane trilogy. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a Bane trilogy. Well, I, that's the thing. That's why we called this one the Saga of the Forgotten Warrior. Right off the bat, Tony was like, "We're not going to call this a trilogy because you're not going to fit that in the in the free book." And I was like, yeah. "Yes, ma'am." Yeah. <laughs> well, we have out right now uh, the the great second step in this in this great saga, and um, it's it's slam bam, fun adventure. It is full of new information about the world. It's just everything you would want in a high fantasy novel. Uh, that is House of Assassins by Larry Correa. It's book two in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. Uh, Larry, uh, thank you so much for talking with us about this and. Uh, and good luck on the tour. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was part two of a two-part interview with Larry Correa talking about the House of Assassins. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, 
He united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 19 The presiding judge slammed his staff against the floor. The sudden noise brought the meeting to order. The judges, arbiters, regulators, courtiers, scribes and other various functionaries all took their seats in their sections that were carefully sorted by house, status and rank. Bang! Several months ago, this committee asked for a report to be generated pertaining to the proposed eradication of the castless. The report is prepared and the meeting will come to order. The staff came down again. Bang! Considering they'd been using the Chamber of Argument for hundreds of years, Senior Archivist Rada wondered how many times they'd had to replace the floor with all that staff banging. She'd have to look it up. Honorable judges, representatives of the great houses, your scribes have been provided with a copy of the Order of Archivists report. Are there any questions pertaining to the report? Rada was in the scholars' section, far behind the presiding judge. She could see most of the chamber from here, and she glanced about fearfully, waiting to see who would condemn her first for submitting an incomplete and academically dubious report to this august body. Surely someone would realize how shoddy it was. There were inquisitors standing in the aisles to keep order. Once a judge pointed out her errors, one of those inquisitors would drag her away for execution. Sure. She could say that it was some nameless inquisitor who'd forced her to leave out pertinent information, but who would believe her? Several minutes passed as the judges flipped through their provided summaries. Rada was sweating, and she couldn't stop one leg from vibrating nervously, but nobody stood up to accuse her of fraud or treachery. Since there was no shouting or cries for Rada to be dragged through the streets and lashed to the Inquisitor's dome to sunburn, wither, and die, the presiding judge was able to speak freely. As you can see, there appear to be no real legal mandates pertaining to this topic. There is some confusion as to the origins of the idea that the untouchables were somehow protected, and a few oral traditions but nothing in the actual statutes can be found. The last time a full report was done on this subject was two generations ago, and the only references found in that report pertain to customs, not laws. The idea that some number of castless must always exist 
appears to be a tradition formed by the great houses hundreds of years ago. Our ancestors didn't have to put up with so damned many of them. They breed like rabbits, someone shouted from the judge's gallery. Many laughed. Rada had flinched at the noise, certain that it would have been someone from the unpopular and neglected historian's order calling attention to her lies. But it had only been a stupid joke. Besides, there weren't that many historians, and none of them were here. Indeed, the presiding judge said, let us honor the wisdom of our ancestors and be respectful of their traditions as we debate. However, since there are no legally binding covenants, the committee is free to vote as they see fit. Before we begin, does anyone have any amendments they'd like to make before this report is entered into the permanent records of the Capitol? She could stand up now and speak. There was a mistake. A page had been left off the summary. There was some pertinent history that really mattered to the discussion. Saying there was an error would bring dishonor to her family, since her father had signed off on this report himself. But being blamed for a mistake was more honorable than committing fraud. She didn't know what her father knew about the Inquisitor's threats, but after he'd put her back on the assignment, he'd made her swear that she would only use the contemporary records. Even he, the respected head of an order, was afraid. She could say something, anything. This is my last chance to tell the truth. But Rada didn't get to find out if she was that brave or not, because one of the Inquisitors patrolling the aisles had stopped directly next to her seat. She looked up, and he was staring right through her, his eyes nothing but black holes in his metal mask, sharp teeth in a leering, hungry mouth. It was the face of the law. He had a polished club in one hand and was resting it in his other palm, fingers tapping an absent beat against the wood. We'll be watching. Rada put her head down and kept it there. She never should have stolen this assignment from that drunken imbecile German. Since there are no comments, the report will be entered into the official records and used as the basis for all future discussions on this topic. The debate will now commence. The staff recognizes Arbiter Artya Zati Darzaga. When Rada looked up, the Inquisitor had continued down the aisle, and a beautiful woman had gone to the podium. She had such a lovely voice that it was almost like she was reading a poem rather than estimates of how much it would cost to round up and slaughter millions of untouchables. Though Rada had never met a castless, and had been brought up thinking that they weren't people at all, now that she knew where they came from, Rada discovered that the discussion was making her nauseous. She certainly didn't buy into any religious nonsense about forgotten gods and their prophecies, but now that she knew the untouchables' history... She knew the term non-people to be inaccurate. They were a filthy, degenerate, and evil lot, but still people. And now these judges were arguing their fate without all the facts. 
From watching them, she doubted any of the judges would really care, even if they knew the truth behind the law, since their only philosophy seemed to be one of selfishness. But that didn't make Rada feel any better. I'm a dishonorable coward and a failure of a librarian. The debate was heated and seemed to go on forever. Rada didn't like being around people to begin with, so listening to them bloviate, lie, and call each other names was particularly difficult to deal with. But she forced herself to stay. She had to see what she'd caused. The scribes around her were enjoying this and rooting for different factions, as if this was some sort of contest. The judges spent hours yelling at each other. Some houses didn't seem to mind their castless so much because their labors earned money for their thakurs. Others hated them, but even they had to admit that destroying them would be expensive and time-consuming. Nobody would admit to liking the untouchables, but other than a few who railed against the castless menace, it didn't seem like the proposal would go anywhere. Rada breathed a sigh of relief. Maybe she'd be able to return to her library soon, without having helped eradicate a quarter of the world's population. A judge from Akershan had reached the podium. The staff recognized him and gave him the floor. Rada wasn't sure what he was talking about at first, as she didn't really keep up on current events, but he was complaining about a huge rebellion in his lands. The news must have been dire, because it even got the annoying scribes to shut up and pay attention. The false prophet's army has burned the vital town of Hamilwa. Three protectors were in the area. Three, yet somehow he was able to sneak right past them to flee back into the mountains unharmed. Such a failure is unacceptable, shouted someone in the crowd. I'm not so sure it was a failure at all, said the judge from Akershan. It is said that the only way you can escape the protector's wrath is if they aren't that inclined toward catching you to begin with. A shudder went through the crowd of oohs and ahs, and many whispered, how dare he? Rada didn't understand people very well, but even she understood that a dire insult had just been given. What are you insinuating? There was only a single individual sitting in the section set aside for honored guests and visiting dignitaries, and that man stood up, folded his arms, and glared at the speaker. She didn't know who he was, but Rada was fairly certain he was even more out of place here than she was. He looked more like a younger version of the crippled, battered representatives of the warrior caste than any of the governing caste here, but he was sitting in an important section, indicating a very high status, at least equivalent to her father's station. The audience seemed shocked to hear this one speak up, don't dance around. Give your accusation or shut your idiot mouth. The presiding judge banged his staff on the floor. Please, Lord Protector Devadas, representatives of orders must not speak in the chamber unless questioned. My apologies, Your Honor. I assumed I was being questioned when this honorless dog insinuated that some of my men are traitors. If that was his intent, my answer is no, and my inclination is to give him the back of my hand, the protector said. The audience roared, 
and the presiding judge did his best to punch a hole in the floor with his staff. Order! Order! She had to admit the protector was a rather handsome man, lean and muscular, with broad shoulders and narrow waist, and a strong, square jaw. Rada didn't like people, but she could still appreciate natural beauty as well as any woman. However, unlike the pretty first-cast men she'd associated with, this one looked like he could murder the entire chamber and sleep well at night. But the Akashan judge wasn't deterred. Is the idea of a traitor amongst the protectors so outlandish? How quickly we forget what brought us to this debate to begin with. We must examine the possibility that your men allowed the criminals to escape. Everyone knows the protector order was already infiltrated by one in league with the rebels. Who is this everyone who knows so much? Ashok had no connection to your rebels. How would you know, Lord Protector? He went undetected among you for twenty years. A reasonable man would ask if there are more like him. Perhaps the Blackheart was able to corrupt other Protectors with his lies. There were rumors, only a few years ago, of one of your predecessors who fell into religious madness. Whatever happened to him? I believe his name was Ratul. Rada looked back to see the reaction. The Lord Protector seemed angry enough to strangle the judge on the spot. He'd already walked out of his section, into the aisle, and was heading toward the podium. The judge grew frightened and fled. An inquisitor intercepted the Protector and put out one hand to stop him. If you want to keep that hand, remove it from me now. The inquisitor slowly backed away. Lord Protector! the presiding judge shouted. I implore you to calm yourself. Your place is to enforce the law, not to threaten its authors. I'm certain he's very sorry for this inadvertent insult, and will issue an apology to your order. Isn't that correct? The Akashan judge had fled back to the far corner of his section, surely hoping to put as many of his friends' bodies between himself and the protector's wounded pride as possible. Yes, your honor. I didn't intend to give any offense. That's the truth. Truth? Devadas spat. Then he looked around the chamber of argument. Most would not meet his gaze. I don't think the residents of this honored chamber would recognize the truth if it was crammed down their throats. Lord Protector, that is enough. No, it isn't. The judges sit here in the shade, fat and comfortable, as you casually propose a slaughter beyond imagining. I've traveled lock from one end to the other, seen every great house, and I can assure you, though the castles are individually weak, there are many. And when the warriors do as they're told, all of the untouchables will rise up. Unlike most of you, I've seen bloodshed and far too much to take such delight in it. All of you, pronouncing judgment about those things you barely understand, spending lives like their banknotes, and questioning the integrity of those who've sacrificed more than you can imagine. Devadas picked out one particular chief judge wearing Vidal colors to glare at. Even while criminals lurk among you like rats. Protector! 
The presiding judge snapped. You are dismissed. Devadas gave a very stiff bow toward the presiding judge. Then he turned and strode from the room. The inquisitors at the door rushed to get out of his way. The instant he was gone, the chamber of argument lived up to its name, descending into shouting and general mayhem. How dare you insult the protectors? He protests too much. Investigate the order for treachery. If the rebels can corrupt even our finest, then surely all the castless must be destroyed. One of the men sitting next to Rada was giggling. Then he leaned over and whispered to another scribe. That southerner sounds like a grunting ape compared to Mindarin the Eloquent. I bet the Order is regretting promoting Devadas to the capital now. That fool has no idea how to behave in polite society, his friend agreed. Apparently, the polite thing to do was lie and insinuate horrible things with impunity, all while never expecting any repercussions. With a traitor in their midst, the last thing that protectors need is more shame. Their support will vanish. This place was unclean. It really made Rada want to return to the quiet of her library. The arguments calmed down and the regular debate resumed, but Rada had heard enough, so she slipped out. Inquisitors watched her the whole way, or at least she felt like they did. She didn't think anything was going to be decided about the castless right now. But worse, she'd helped lay a flawed foundation. She had no idea what horrible decisions might be made in the future because of her cowardice. There was only one thing Rada came away from the Chamber of Argument certain of. There was no way that angry protector who'd boldly stated the obvious truth could be in league with the Inquisitor who'd forced her to lie. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Bain intern Victoria Lambert and the podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a mountain-sized hole deep in the Cascades, leading to the dragon that is actually making plate tectonics work, and is a big monster hunter and open carry fan as well. Plus, thanks, praise, and plaudits to Larry Correa, author of House of Assassins. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>